محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, so we now move on to uh, one of the most significant, one of the most interesting uh, lessons in the seerah of the Prophet wasallam, And this incident uh, marks a turning point for Islam. It is the precursor to the conquest of Mecca. And in fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls this incident a clear victory. Inna fatahna laka fatham mubina. We have given you a clear victory. Uh, many Muslims, they consider Surah Al-Fatah to be for the conquest of Mecca, but this is not true. Surah Al-Fatah came down at the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And so uh, the Fatah that Allah refers to, Inna fatahna laka fat'am mubina. We have given you a clear victory. This is a reference to the incident of Hudaybiyah, which is what we are going to talk about inshallah today and for the next uh, few uh, series or, or lessons. And the Treaty of Hudaybiyah or the incident of Hudaybiyah this is especially relevant to Muslims living in the West. No doubt the whole seerah is important. But especially the incident of Hudaybiyah, there is a uh, marked significance for us living here in the West. And we're going to come to this when, when the time is appropriate. But uh, in a nutshell, basically, uh, the, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah demonstrates that at times, political alliances or treaties or agreements that we have with others, it forces us to allow other states to do injustice, other empires to get away with unjust policies, uh, and all that we can do is to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for help. We can't do much beyond this. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah shows us that sometimes for the Muslim community to simply uh, make dua to Allah against the oppressor, this is all that we can do. And sometimes we go beyond this. And of course, uh, when we do each, uh, when, when do we make dua and don't do anything, and when do we go beyond this? This is something the scholars of each era and each land and each community will decide. But as we will see in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, Clearly, unjust injustice happened. Clearly, the Quraysh did zulm upon the Muslims. And the Prophet, because of an agreement he had, he could not defend those particular Muslims. And he had to sacrifice a few for the benefit of the uh, larger or the more. And of course, Allah took care of uh, both the, the few and the more. By the way, the mic seems bad. Is there something you hear? You see, do you hear something? Yes. I think. Uh, uh, Tone it down a little bit. Uh, and by the way, just FYI, so uh, the first lectures of Sirah I ever gave more than 15 years ago, I forgot, it's been a long time. The first lectures of Sirah I ever gave dealt with two stories. And those are the first two stories I ever gave a public lecture about the Sirah is the slander of Aisha and the story of Hudaybiyah. Because both of them uh, are very relevant and very pertinent to society. We already talked about the slander of Aisha and how slandering is something that leads to so much evil. And also one of the earliest lectures of Sirah I gave is the incident of the Treaty of uh, Hudaybiyah. Now, the first issue. What do we call this incident? Because some of the books reference it as the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and some references as the expedition or the Ghazwa of Hudaybiyah. In Arabic, Sulh al-Hudaybiyah or Ghazwa al-Hudaybiyah. And both of them have their, uh, their, if you like, pros and cons. Most of the later writers, they reference it as the Treaty of Hudaybiyah or the Peace Treaty of Hudaybiyah, Sulh al-Hudaybiyah. However, 
The Sahaba, most of them referenced it as Ghazwat al-Hudaybiyah. And this is interesting. Why is it interesting that they called it Ghazwat al-Hudaybiyah? Why is it interesting? Why is it a little bit abnormal, if you like? A little bit. There was no Ghazwa. There was no Ghazwa. What is a Ghazwa? Generally speaking, a Ghazwa means when the Prophet fought. Remember we said the difference between Sariya and Ghazwa, right? And there was no actual battle that took place. And yet, most of the Sahaba called this Ghazwatul Hudaybiyyah. And we find this in the hadith, for example, of uh, Salamat ibn al-Aqwa, the famous hadith we did many, many, many months ago, in which he said that I participated in seven ghazawat with the Prophet And he began to list them until he finally said, number five, Ghazwatul Hudaybiyyah. So he called it Ghazwatul Hudaybiyyah, even though there was no actual battle that took place. And other Sahaba also called it Ghazwatul Hudaybiyyah. So why would they call it a Ghazwa? Well, because... The fighting didn't actually take place. But the Prophet and the Sahaba were, came a hair's width close to actually fighting. And they were prepared to fight. And they took the covenant to fight. So it is as if they might as well have actually fought. So they had the determination. They had the resolve to fight. So they called it Ghazwa. Also, uh, it can be called a Ghazwa because... This expedition or this uh, uh, incident of Hudaybiyyah is so significant politically that it really references more than just the incident of Hudaybiyyah. So some scholars say it actually makes more sense to call it the Ghazwa because Ghazwa means there was a conquest and Allah has called it a conquest. Inna fatahna laka fatham mubina. What was the cause of this Ghazwa? What was the reason why the Prophet left Medina? Uh, sometime during the sixth year of the Hijrah, we don't know exactly when. The Prophet saw a dream in which he saw himself doing tawaf around the Kaaba and being in ihram, which means he's in Umrah, and shaving his hair, which means he's finished the Umrah. So he saw himself doing all of these rites of Umrah. And he interpreted this because as we know, the dreams of the prophets are all true. He interpreted this that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is commanding him to go to Mecca and do Umrah. And uh, this dream, it is not mentioned explicitly uh, that the Prophet saw it, but what is mentioned is that when Hudaybiyah is going on and after Hudaybiyah, references are existing to the dream. For example, the Quran itself references. The Quran itself references. لَقَدْ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ رَسُولَهُ الرُّؤْيَا بِالْحَقِّ Verily, the dream that you saw, Allah will cause it to be true. لَتَدْخُلَنَّ الْمَسْجِدَ الْحَرَامَ You will of a surety in the future. So Allah says, you saw a dream, it's going to be true, but it will happen in the future. You will be safe and secure, and you will have had your hairs shaved off. And also in the famous hadith of Bukhari, as we will come to, that Umar ibn al-Khattab came up to the Prophet and said, Ya Rasulullah, did you not tell us that uh, we would be doing tawaf and shaving our hair, so where would he get this information from? Allah told him through the dream, and the Prophet said, I told you, but did I say it was going to be this year? No, it could be next year. So clearly then, there are references to the Prophet having seen a dream. And so the Prophet announced his intentions to the Sahaba and to the surrounding Muslim tribes. By now it's the sixth year of the Hijrah, so Badr has taken place, Uhud has taken place, Khandaq has taken place. The Islamic Republic, or the Islamic, if you like, um, um, Political area has become relatively large, so the surrounding near areas are also Muslim. So the Prophet announces his intention that he will embark on a Umrah to uh, Mecca, so everybody who is able to join should join. And 
all of the historians, all of the seerah experts agree, and this is amazing that they actually agree on a date because usually they don't agree. Even the Battle of Uhud is debated, even the Battle of, oh, so many battles are debated. The Battle of Khandaq is a huge debate when it took place. The Battle of Dhat uh, al all of these battles is a huge debate. For some reason, uh, this battle is pretty much unanimously agreed. The Prophet left Medina on the first of Dhul Qa'dah in the sixth year of the Hijrah. So this is pretty much unanimously agreed. In fact, I don't know of any difference of opinion amongst all of the classical scholars of Sirah that the Prophet left Medina on the first of Dhul Qa'dah and he had made the announcement to the Ansar, to the Muhajirun, to the surrounding tribes that he would be performing the Umrah. Now we can imagine the Sahaba have not seen Mecca for six years and the excitement would have been so high as well the anticipation, as well the nervousness, what's going to happen. And when the news reached the Muhajirun and Ansar, they immediately prepared, it's going to be at least a month, uh, a month and a half to go do Umrah and come back, and Allah knows what's going to happen. They're preparing. As for the Bedouins, as for the Arab around Medina, they refused to participate. And the Quran references this, and also books of uh, Sirah and Tafsir reference it, that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah Al-Fatih that uh, those who remain behind uh, from the A'rab, from the Bedouins, they said, شَغَلَتْنَا أَمْوَالُنَا وَأَهْلُونَا فَاسْتَغْفِرْ لَنَا They gave an excuse to the Prophet and they said, our properties, our money and our families, they prevented us. So ask Allah to forgive us, we're not able to go. شَغَلَتْنَا أَمْوَالُنَا وَأَهْلُونَا فَاسْتَغْفِرْ لَنَا Then Allah exposed them. يَقُولُونَ بِأَلْسِنَتِهِمْ مَا لَيْسَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ they say with their tongues what is not in their hearts. And Allah Azza wa Jal tells us, this is in Surah Al-Fatih, verses 10 onwards, what was their real excuse? بَلْ ظَنَنْتُمْ أَلَّنْ يَنْقَلِبَ الرَّسُولُ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِلَاهِلِهِمْ أَبَدًا وَزُيِّنَ ذَلِكَ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ وَظَنَنْتُمْ ظَنَّ السَّوْءِ وَكُنْتُمْ قَوْمًا بُورًا You thought that the Prophet and the believers will never return back alive. And you thought the worst thoughts of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you were a wretched people. That your, your opinion of Allah is so cheap and so that as if the Prophet is going to die, the Sahaba are going to die, so you made an excuse. And Allah exposed their excuse in the Quran. And we have also in the books, uh, some of the books of Tafsir that these Arab, these Bedouins, they said that this man, meaning the Prophet wants us to go to the very nation that came here to kill us the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, they came here to kill us. Surely, this is not going to happen. We will not go marching to our debts. Let us make an excuse and just tell him something else. And this is exactly what they did. They invented an excuse and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, exposed them. And subhanAllah, their excuse and their laziness and their fear prevented them from upgrading themselves to have the highest honor after the Battle of Badr. As we will come to later on, the Sahaba are not one level. The Sahaba have ranks. And the highest ranks, well we can say the highest rank is Ashara Mubashara. These are the ten. The second highest are Badr. And the third highest are Hudaybiyah. Bay'at al-Ridwan. Right? And we see here a causal relationship. Those who were brave to go, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed them with such an immense blessing that the Prophet said to them when he gave them Bay'at al-Ridwan, he said, no one on earth is more pious and righteous than this group in front of me now. That the Prophet praised them in this manner. 
And that is why anybody who was present in Bay'at al-Ridwan, he gets an automatic upgrade from the Sahaba that's really second only to Badr. So Badr is the highest, al-Badri. And then the one who participated in Bay'at al-Ridwan. And as for these people, the A'rab, because they were hesitant, so they deprived themselves of the blessing of Allah. And of course, this is a well-known principle of Islam. The more tawakkul you have in Allah, the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless you. In the end, the books of Sirah mentioned, Bukhari and others mentioned 1,400 companions left Medina for Mecca. Now notice here, every single battle or every single ghazwa, the numbers are increasing. What does this show us? More and more Muslims are embracing Islam, right? Badr is 300 something. Then Uhud gets up to 700 something, right? Then Khandaq, we estimated maybe there was like a thousand or something men. Right? So slowly but surely we see, now unfortunately the books of Sirah, they don't fill in all the details, but we can extrapolate. The very fact that 1400 men are going out for the Umrah clearly shows that now the Muslims, mashallah, tabarakallah, are numbering in uh, the thousands now. Alhamdulillah, the tide is turning even in terms of quantity. So 1400 of the Sahaba, they left Medina for Mecca. And uh, there are a number of reports. Now here the books of, of Sirah differ. This is the big controversy. Were they armed for battle or were they not armed for battle? There seems to be both uh, opinions found in the early books of Sirah. Some books mention that they were only wearing the fighting swords. The swords that, so they had different types of swords. There's a sword that you use for animals and just to protection. Then you have, uh, sorry, not fighting swords, defense swords, excuse me. Then you have fighting swords. And that is the sharper sword that is used for actual battle. You have the fighting gear, you have the helmets, you have the armor. Now, scholars have differed or early reports have differed. Did they have the armor and weapons or not? Some books mention they did. Some books mention they didn't. And one way to combine these two, and this seems to be uh, the, 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 the position that inshallah is the correct one. One way to combine these two is that they were not wearing these weapons and armor, but they had them in case they needed them. They had them in separate caravans or in separate, you know, the camels are carrying all of it, but they are not wearing it. Now, obviously, they are not wearing it for another reason, and that is because they're in ihram. And when you're in ihram, you really cannot wear weapons. Uh, you're not allowed to wear, you know, uh, uh, these types of things. So, uh, in the state of ihram, it is difficult and it is uh, not feasible to wear uh, these types of things. So, Allah knows best. Those people who, who said they weren't armed, they're saying they weren't wearing the arms. And those who said they had arms means they had them in the caravan if they needed them. And this in fact makes sense because the Prophet would not just walk in uh, blindly not knowing what is going to happen. His whole seerah shows us that he took every reasonable precaution. Now, another interesting thing is that the Prophet left Mecca on the first of Dhul Qa'dah. And this is an interesting point here, the first of Dhul Qa'dah. What is so interesting about the first of Dhul Qa'dah? Because... Ashhurul Hurum, or the sacred months, they start from the first of Dhul Qa'dah. You all know the sacred months by now. What are the sacred months? Where is Ramadan? MashaAllah. Okay, good. Trick question. Okay. There is no. Uh, Ramadan is not of the sacred months. There are four sacred months, right? Minha Arba'atun Hurum. There are 12 months of the year. This was what Allah had decreed the day He created the heavens and the earth. Out of those 12 months, four of them are sacred. 
Arba'atun Hurum. And this was the religion of Ibrahim. And so the Arabs of Jahiliyyah had adopted that, but they made a big mistake, or not a big mistake, they made a big treason for these months. What did they do? They mixed and matched, they changed them around. They would, if they wanted to go to war, they would say, okay, let's pause Ashhadul Hurum. Instead of calling this Dul Qaeda, let's call this Shawwal. We'll delay Dul Qaeda to the next month. Right? So they kept on swapping back and forth. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, this type of swapping back and forth, This is the essence of blasphemy. You're playing with the law of Allah. And then, uh, just as a footnote, a tangent here. So when the Prophet did Hajjatul Wada'a, when the Prophet did Hajjatul Wada'a, it so happened that the restructuring of the year made it back to the original 12 order. And so the Prophet said that in this year, the 12 months have reverted to the original order that the cycle was when Allah created the heavens and the earth. So let there be no more swapping around. right? Because you see, after so much swapping, there was confusion now. What month is what? Can you imagine for centuries they're swapping back and forth? So the people were then confused. So it's just a yearly. And by the way, this is one of the years they couldn't have, one of the reasons they could not have a calendar. So from that year of Hajjatul Wada' up until our times, the Ashhur have been set in stone the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended. So what are the sacred months? Dhul Qa'da, Dhul Hijjah, Muharram, back to back, and then Shawwal, Sha'ban, Rajab, Rajab. Rajab, okay? Memorize this. This is basic, basic, basic stuff. Dhul Qa'da, Dhul Hijjah, Muharram, and then Rajab. These are the uh, four sacred months. Now, the Prophet left Mecca on the very beginning of the sacred month. So, literally, he is delaying his departure until the Ashurul Hurum begins. And this is clearly intended. It's not a coincidence, right? Whenever he saw the dream, we don't know. But he's waiting for the first of Dhul Qa'da and literally, and it happened to be a Monday, Monday, the first of Dhul Qa'da, the Prophet leaves Medina. Why? Because he wants to send the clearest message possible to the Quraysh that I have no desire for war. I have no desire for war. I'm leaving peacefully, I'm wearing ihram, and I'm going peacefully to Mecca. Now, of course we understand, or if we don't, then I'll clarify here. This was a huge gamble or risk. And obviously the Prophet was putting his trust in Allah when he's doing this risk, but it is a risk. Why is it a risk? Well, technically, technically, the Quraysh are supposed to allow everybody to come to Mecca in the sacred months. Ibn Abbas himself says that in the sacred months and in the haram, the murderer, sorry, the one whose father was murdered would see his father's murderer doing tawaf, but he would not touch him. This was the law of Jahiliyyah, the law of Ibrahim obviously, that the law of Jahiliyyah that the Quraysh prided themselves on. That once the Ashur al-Hurum is announced and the people of Mecca know, uh, and the people of Arabia know, it is now the sacred months, so there should not be any fighting. And remember we talked about the incident uh, right before the battle of Badr when uh, the Sahaba, they had the, the, the little bit of an uh, expedition outside of Mecca and they killed one person on the first day of of the sacred months, what happens? The people of Mecca, the Quraysh, raised a huge hue and cry. They kill in Ashurul Hurum, right? And Allah revealed in the Quran, they ask you about fighting in the sacred months. Fighting in the sacred months is a kabir. And this means in Islam, anybody, now this obviously applies to nations and states, anybody who engages in offensive war in the Ashurul Hurum, 
This is kabiratun min al-kaba'ir. This is a major sin. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for wisdoms that are some of which are obvious and some of which Allah knows, for political stability, for the economy of the world, there should be one-fourth of the year, everybody should be at peace. And if there needs to be a war that is offensive, delay it to a time that everybody should be on guard, everybody should know. So four months of the year, there should be complete peace. And therefore the Prophet leaves on the first of Dhul Qa'dah so that everybody can be sure that I am leaving in the state of Ihram in the month of Haram to visit the land of the Haram. And technically, the Quraysh are not allowed to prevent anybody from entering Mecca during Ashur al-Hurum. And in their history, they have never done so. There's always a first, there's going to be a first now. right? In their history, they have never done so. And this would be the very first time in the history of the Quraysh that they would disobey the law of Ibrahim and knowing it is the Ashhur al-Hurum, announcing it is the Ashhur al-Hurum, still they do not allow the pilgrims access to uh, the Kaaba, and this is going to happen uh, in a few days. So the Prophet leaves on the first of the Qa'dah and he reaches the Miqat, and the Miqat, of course, of Medina is the Miqat of Medina is Dhul Hulayfa, Dhul Hulayfa, and. It is the sunnah to pray uh, two rak'ahs in Dhul Hulayfa. It is well known. It is the sunnah. And to this day, pilgrims who leave Medina, uh, they will stop in Dhul Hulayfa and they will pray two rak'ahs. And we talked about this in the fiqh of Hajj. And to reiterate, uh, the two rak'ahs are prayed because of the valley of Dhul Hulayfa and not because of the ihram. Many people uh, have the position, and this is a position that the fuqaha have held, but there's no basis for it, that you pray two rak'ahs every time you enter the ihram. And this doesn't seem to be the case. Rather, the case is the Prophet prayed in Dhul Hulayfa because he said this is a sacred valley. And so he prayed two rak'ahs because of the valley of Dhul Hulayfa. And so he prayed two rak'ahs and then he put on the ihram and he also consecrated the animals. The consecration of animals is something that unfortunately the Muslim ummah has almost lost in its entirety. And this is a practice that was instituted by Ibrahim alayhi salam and it was uh, very common up until recently in history when people stopped bringing camels and animals uh, for Hajj and uh, for Umrah. Uh, and by the way, you can, you can take Udhiyah uh, in Hajj and in Umrah because the Prophet is going for Umrah and yet he has with him animals. In fact, in one report, he took 70 camels. 70 camels is a fortune. And subhanAllah, this year he took 70. Hajjatul Wada'i, he took 100. And this shows us that another point we benefit. The Prophet always wanted to increase when he did something. right? That he was going for Umrah, he takes 70. He goes for Hajj, he takes 100. That whenever he wanted to do something again, he didn't want to do it the same way, he wanted to do it even better. That every year, every instance is moving up. So this year he takes 70 camels and when you enter Ihram, you consecrate the camels. What does it mean, uh, consecrate the camels? Uh, and this is uh, Ihlal. Uh, in Arabic is called Ihlal. Uh, and Ihlal means to basically uh, put special decorations, garlands, uh, different types of signs that uh, these days is very rare to see. You put it on the animal. And the reason why you put it on the animal is to designate this animal has been dedicated for the fuqara and masakin of Mecca and we are going to take it as a token to present uh, basically uh, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala pass out the meat to the fuqara and Allah will uh, you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless us for that and the Arabs of old all of them and uh, this is something unfortunately it is now lost because people don't do it that often when they would see these animals this is a sign of piety 
It is a sign of Iman. And they valued this. Why? Because you have all of these camels. Now technically, once you have consecrated an animal, you're not supposed to use it. Unless you have to. So if you only have one camel, and you have consecrated it, then you're allowed to ride the camel to Mecca. But if you have two camels and you've consecrated one, you are not allowed to ride that camel. Because you have dedicated it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have dedicated it to the fuqara. So this is a sign of sha'air. This is a sign of uh, one of the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah says, with regards to these camels, Whoever shows honor to the symbols of Allah, then showing honor to the symbols of Allah comes from the taqwa of the heart. And the context of these verses in Surah Al-Hajj is a direct reference to these animals. Uh, by the way, have any of you seen these animals, these types of consecrations? Is it common in Pakistan anymore? I don't know. It is, huh? Okay, that's, so you decorate them in this manner. Exactly, yes, that's the point, yeah. Yes, exactly, that's the consecration, exactly. I was wondering, is this still, uh, of course it is, I mean, when we did Hajj, when I did Hajj, uh, with uh, some local Arabs not going with the tour, see, when you go with the tour, what happens? You stick with the tourists, Right? You do it when you're taking the animal to Mecca, right? That's a different issue. But when you're going for Hajj and Umrah, then you're supposed to show the people that these animals have been dedicated to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Uh, and by the way, I mean, uh, I'll look up into this issue, but um, I'm not saying it's wrong, by the way. But the, the point of consecration is, it is the Hadi, it is the Udhiya that you take to the Kaaba. Okay, so the Prophet had all of these 70 animals uh, consecrated, uh, dedicated if you like. And if you remember, or for those of you who have heard this story before, towards the end of this story, what happens? He shows these animals, he demonstrates he has all of these animals to some of the emissaries that have come from the Quraysh. And this softens the heart of some of the emissaries. And they say, all of these animals for, the, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is not allowed to stop these people from going to the Kaaba. Right? So he used this as a tactic as well to soften the heart. Now obviously the niyyah here is not to do this, but he is using this later on to soften the hearts of the enemies in the Quraysh that to, because it was a part of their culture and it's a part of our culture that these animals are meant for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be distributed to the fuqara of Mecca, to the hujjaj, to the pilgrims, to the people doing umrah in Mecca. So nobody should touch them to stop them. They now have a sacred status. So... Uh, the Prophet consecrated his animals at Dhul Hulayfa. And it was at Dhul Hulayfa that he chose a, per, a sahabi uh, by the name of Busr ibn Safwan al-Khuza'i to go to Mecca and find out what the Quraysh were doing and come back and report to him. Now, uh, again and again we find the caution of the Prophet wasallam again and again that his tawakkul is so perfect he knows Allah Azza wa will take care. But he does everything in his power to make sure that the plan is perfect. And we see this throughout the whole seerah. Tawakkul means you do everything you can and then you leave the rest to Allah. He's sending a spy. Which spy did he choose? Nobody famous. Nobody knows him from the Quraysh. He's not even from the, from the Ansar or the Muhajirun. He's from the Khuza'a. And the Khuza'a is a neutral tribe. He's a Muslim. The tribe is neutral. The tribe of Khuza'a is neutral. Why is this beneficial? Because if he sent an Aus or a Khazrajite, big trouble. If he sent a, a, a Muhajir, everybody knows all of the Muhajirun. 
So he sends somebody that nobody knows has converted yet. And his tribe is a neutral tribe. You go to Mecca, you find out what's going on. They're going to hear that I've departed Mecca, Medina, excuse me. They're going to hear, what is the reaction of the Quraysh? Come back and tell us, right? And this also shows us that the Prophet was expecting opposition. Unlike his other military expeditions, he didn't give another uh, area that he's going to. You know, it was common for the Prophet wherever he's going, if he's going north, he'd exit the city south. If he's going west, he'd exit the city east. So that the news spreads, oh, he's exited east, and then he's going to double back. This was common for most of its expeditions. When it came to this incident of Hudaybiyah, he went straight to Mecca. And this was also to demonstrate, I have nothing to hide. I don't have a double agenda. I'm leaving in Ihram, in the month of, Ihram, of Hurum, of, of, of uh, sacred month, Haram, in order to go to the Haram. And he sent Busr uh, ibn Safwan al-Khuza'i. And uh, we will see what Busr will come back with in a few days. As he was proceeding, news reached him that there was a group of riders in an area called Ghayqa. It's an area a little uh, way off the path. So he thought this might be the Quraysh sending a contingent. So uh, he sent a small group to ver verify who these people are. Turns out it wasn't the Quraysh, it was a false alarm. But an incident happened that the books of fiqh love to mention. It's not quite relevant to the politics of Hudaybiyyah and Sirah, but the books of fiqh, in fact, every single book of, of hadith, Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawud, Tirmidhi, Nisai, you imagine, every book of hadith mentions this particular incident. So let me put it in here, in here, even though it's not politically relevant, it is relevant for the fiqh of something that happens. So in this mini expedition, and by the way, this also shows us that the Prophet has guards around the army or around the 1,400. He has convoys, he has spies, he has everybody, not spies, but lookouts is a better term here, not spies, but lookouts. That people are scouts, is a good term, yes, scouts. He has scouts around the army. So when they see some group in the distance, the scout comes back, tells him there's a group, he sends a contingent. Make sure it's not the Quraysh, find out what's going on. And it turns out it's another group, not a, anything to worry about. And on the way back, as we said, an incident takes place, which is, Interesting for fiqh. Uh, what happens was on the way back, there were a group of sahaba, probably 10, 15 in number, and amongst them was Abu Qatada al-Ansari. And Abu Qatada al-Ansari, for some reason that the books do not mention, I looked this up as much as I could, I could not find anything, uh, he was not in Ihram. Why? I don't know. But for some reason, he was not in Ihram. And everybody else was in Ihram. Now it is also mentioned that Abu Qatada was put in charge of the sacrificial animals. I don't know if this, did this have anything to do with it or not. But for some reason he was not in Ihram. He was just accompanying the army. So what happens? That's related to fiqh. On the way back, the Sahaba see a herd of zebras. Or in one report, a herd of gazelles. Now we know that in Ihram you're not supposed to hunt. We covered this many times. You're not supposed to hunt. So when the Sahaba saw and uh, zebras or gazelles, by the way, there were zebras in Arabia at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. There are no more any wild zebras. In the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there were wild, wild zebras. And the term for zebra is Himar al-Wahshi. And many English translators, they completely mistranslate Himar al-Wahshi to mean a wild donkey. And they say Himar al-Ahli, a domesticated donkey, is a big mistake. Himar al-Wahshi is a zebra. And the Sharia has allowed zebra to be hunted and it has forbidden donkey. And the Prophet explicitly said in the battle of a conquest of Mecca, he explicitly said Allah and his messenger have allowed al-humur al-wahshi and they have made haram al-humur al-ahli. 
So donkeys are haram to eat, and zebras, if you hunt them properly, are halal to eat. And they are uh, apparently a delicacy for the Arabs at the time. So the Sahaba saw a, f- a flock of zebras. None of them moved. None of them gave any motion to the zebras. And they didn't even tell Abu Qatada that there's zebras over there. Because they didn't want him to see. Because it's haram for them to hunt zebras. Abu Qadada is not in ihram. And this is why this is interesting in fiqh. Now, what do you do if you're a group that's half in ihram, half not in ihram? Can those in not in ihram hunt for those in ihram? Now, this is quite irrelevant for us who are going on five-star packages from Mecca and our meals are provided. We don't go bow and arrow into the desert hunting. Once upon a time, this was a very crucial fiqh issue for all hujjaj from around the world. Right. We thank Allah that technology has changed and whatnot, that we don't have to worry about this anymore. But you can see why this was very important for all hujaj around the world. So Abu Qatada, he eventually saw the zebras. The Sahaba did not motion to him, there are zebras over there. He saw the zebras. And he didn't have his, his uh, bow and arrow uh, with him, it was in the back. And so he told the Sahabi, and he's on his horse. He told the Sahaba uh, that were walking, he said, hand me my bow and arrow. And they refused to do so. They said, we are in the state of ihram. And it's not allowed for us to hunt. So they didn't hand him the bow and arrow. He jumped off the horse, got his own bow and arrow, jumped back on, and then started galloping towards the zebras, managed to catch one of them and slaughter it, and uh, comes back with zebra meat. The Sahaba said, we are not allowed to touch this. We cannot eat because we are in the state of ihram. And so... They return back to the camp and they ask the Prophet ﷺ that was this meat allowed for us to eat or not? And the Prophet ﷺ asked them, did any of you motion to him where the zebras were? They said no. The Prophet ﷺ asked them, did any of you help him in capturing or, or hunting the zebras? They said no. So he said, in that case, eat. And if you have any extra meat, bring it to me as well. The Prophet loved meat, a sunnah that alhamdulillah, I definitely follow. <laughs> so he said, any extra meat, bring it to me as well. And so he ate of that meat. Now, you all understand the fiqh here that's not relevant to us. And that is, if a non-muhrim amongst people in ihram, in and of himself, without any help, and scholars say, even nudging somebody and winking, there's an animal over there, right? This is helping. Because, you know, when you're in the desert, you see an animal in the distance, right? Even just pointing or handing him a spear, handing him a bow and arrow, in our times, handing him a hunting gun or rifle. All of this constitutes for the muhrim helping. But if the one not in ihram goes of his own accord and he hunts without having been told or helped, and he then gifts the hunted animal to those in ihram, obviously the animal becomes halal. Okay? So this is a fiqh point which is not quite relevant to us for those who are going for hajj or whatnot. I don't think you're going to apply it uh, this hajj around. Allah knows best. But what I find very interesting, subhanAllah, and wallahi it really is, uh, pun intended, food for thought over here. Uh, very profound here. We find the cautiousness of the sahaba. How careful they were. No doubt the Sahaba wanted that meat. No doubt it is a delicacy. For sure they have not eaten meat for a while, 
They're on an expedition. They probably have dates and water, right? Yani subhanAllah, I'll speak for myself, and I know many of us in the room are the same. We don't have meat on the dinner table. We don't have dinner on the table, right? I can't imagine two days without meat. One day with great difficulty, right? Two days, it's like, astaghfirullah, nightmare, right? The Sahaba have been on an expedition. They're eating dates and water. There's this delectable, exotic meat. And they do nothing to capture it. When it is presented for them, cooked on a table, equivalent, I'm being metaphorical here, still they say what? No. Wallahi, what iman is this? Think, right? And subhanAllah, let me be very frank here, how lax we are, especially about food and drink. How lax we are about our income. Who cares? Inshallah, Allah will forgive. Or you don't even think, is it halal or haram? And the sahaba, this is really a sign of taqwa and iman. They want to make sure every luqma, every morsel of food is halal. Because they know the big sin of eating haram. Our Prophet said uh, that the, the flesh that is nourished through the haram will not have any chance of entering Jannah. And our Prophet basically told us in that famous hadith that the one who eats haram, his dua will not be answered. So they were, and no doubt, one who is cautious in his food and drink, no doubt this is a sign of iman and taqwa. No doubt. And that's why one of the outward signs of Islam in Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, مَنْ صَلَّى صَلَاتَنَا وَاسْتَقْبَلَ قِبْلَتَنَا وَأَكَلَ ذَبِيحَتَنَا فَذَلِكُمُ الْمُسْلِمُ The outward sign of Islam, whoever prays our prayer and faces our qibla and eats of our dhabiha, مَنْ صَلَّى صَلَاتَنَا وَاسْتَقْبَلَ قِبْلَتَنَا وَأَكَلَ ذَبِيحَتَنَا فَذَلِكُمُ الْمُسْلِمُ That is the Muslim who has the protection of Allah and His Messenger. So we find over here a remarkable example of the piety. And this is the laws are ambiguous. They don't know. Maybe it's halal, maybe it's not. Can you imagine if they know for sure it's haram? They don't, they're not going to eat until they ask the Prophet ﷺ. And this is what happens over here. And then the Prophet ﷺ tells them that it is halal. <clears throat> so uh, the, uh, the Prophet ﷺ continues to go onwards until finally uh, Busr al-Khuza'i returns back. Busr has gone to Mecca. He has pretended basically he's a regular uh, person, a pilgrim. Uh, he's not told them that he's a Muslim. He hears what the Quraysh are planning. He comes back. And at this point, the process had reached an area called Asfan. And if you're driving from Medina to Mecca, you will find a big sign that says Asfan on your left-hand side. Here he reached this area, Asfan, around mid-midway between Mecca and Medina. And Busr informs him that the Quraysh have heard of his departure, that they have armed themselves, and they have worn their leopard skins. Now what is this? Leopard skins, they would wear it as a sign of war. They would have leopard skins and they would wear it literally as a sign of now we're going to go for war. And they had even taken their women and children with them. And this is again a sign of, we've talked about this in Badr when they did this, uh, in Uhud, excuse me, in Uhud when they did this, uh, that they wanted to show their strength. So they've taken their women and their children and he said they have sent Khalid ibn al-Walid to camp at Ghumaym. And Ghumaym is on the road right outside of Mecca when you're coming in from Medina. When you're coming in from Medina, there's a plane. And that plane, you have to pass it if you want to get to Mecca. So Khalid ibn al-Walid is camped right there with a force that's meant to block you, that's meant to uh, protect you. Uh, sorry, to, to attack you. When the Prophet heard this, he said, Wayha Quraysh. Woe to Quraysh. They have been consumed by war. They're war hungry. The war drums are beating. What would they lose? Mada alayhim? What would they lose if they let me and the other people? Meaning, 
Why do they have to get involved in my affairs? If they hate me so much, let the other Arabs deal with me. And then the Prophet said, if the other Arabs attack me and win, they will get the result they want, which is what? The Prophet is not there anymore, right? And if I win over them, the honor will be theirs. How so? He's Qurayshi. And if the Prophet wins the victor, then automatically the Quraysh will also basically uh, bask in that victory. So what does the Quraysh think will happen? What do you think will happen by preventing me? For by Allah I shall continue to fight them with what Allah has sent me until Allah either grants me victory or this neck of mine is cut off. Look at his resolve. right? And subhanAllah, here the process, and we, we sense here the anguish, the pain. Why are my own people hating me so much? And this clearly demonstrates he did not want to fight his own people. This clearly shows us what is in his heart. He does not want to fight his own people. He loves his people with the love that everybody will have for his own nation, his own kithinkin, uh, his own blood relatives. Why are they doing this to me? It's a win-win if they leave me, and it's a lose-lose if they fight me. Basically, that's what he's saying. It's a win-win if they leave me, meaning either the other arrows will consume me, and so they'll be happy, scot-free. Or I will win over them, and so the Quraysh will become part of my victory. Right? Win-win for them. And if they want to attack me, it's a lose-lose. Whoever wins, we're killing one another. Kith and kin, blood relatives are killing one another. And this really shows us the inner thoughts of the Prophet Our Prophet did not like war. He did not want to fight and shed blood. That's not what he was about. And this is a clear indication against the Islamophobes, against those who are you know, reading into the seed in this manner. Our Prophet only fought because he had to fight. And he did not want to fight his own people. So the Prophet when he heard that the Quraysh are arming, he was sorely disappointed. He didn't like this. He did not want them to uh, fight him. And so he stopped the caravan. And he camped uh, in a shaded area and he addressed the entire group. And he began by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and uh, uh, doing uh, the, the khutbah that he usually does, the khutbah al-hajjah. And then he explained to them what is going on. And he said that the Quraysh have sent out an expedition. Khalid ibn Ruidi is camped at such and such a place. And so what do you think we should do? Uh, oh, excuse me. Before he's asked them, he said, uh, he gave his own idea. What was his own idea? He said uh, that we should attack the surrounding tribes that have also sent men with the Quraysh. Because they're not going to get to Mecca because Khalid is stopping them. So if we can't get to Mecca, let us attack the tribes that have also sent men. Because it wasn't just the Quraysh, it was the surrounding tribes as well. Let's waylay, let's waylay those tribes, surprise attack them, so that the Quraysh will then be forced to be drawn into this conflict or this area. But then he said, what do you think we should do? And at this, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala, he gave his opinion and he said, Ya Rasulullah, you only left your house intending the house of Allah. Your niyyah was the Kaaba, Tawaf, Umrah. You didn't want any war or any battle. This was not your niyyah. So let us go where we had initially intended. Let's forget about war. Let's go straight to the Kaaba and we will only fight if they fight us. And so Abu Bakr gave another opinion. And that opinion was, let's not start the battle. Let's do as we had initially planned to do. 
and we will only fight if they force us to fight. And so the Prophet liked this plan, and he said, Umdu, or let us go forth, Bismillah ta'ala. Let us go forth in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this shows us again and again the concept of shura in Islam, that the Prophet never enacted something without consulting the people. And this is the sign of a true leader. Because if a leader invokes his veto power, if a leader says, obey me because I'm the leader, the people will, even if they obey, they will do so half grudgingly. They'll do so not too happy. But when the shura comes involved and everybody agrees to a plan and everybody's you know, back and forth was heard, now there's going to be genuine enthusiasm. And notice here the Prophet changed his mind. He had a position, Abu Bakr gave him another plan and he found this plan to be more reasonable. And this shows us, uh, where's our brother here who always wants to go back and forth, the ijtihad of the Prophet very clearly. Remember we had this controversy a few months ago. Does the Prophet have ishtihad from his own or not? This is a clear-cut example, right? That the Prophet has his ishtihad and Allah allows him ishtihad, right? And either way, we have to follow the Prophet But he changed his own ishtihad. When he saw another position, and Abu Bakr's position made sense to him, he said, okay, let us do this. Bismillah, let us go in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is said that uh, at Asfan, the same lands, the same plain. At Asfan, he prayed uh, Salat al-Khawf because there was a fear that the Quraysh would attack them. Now here there is a big controversy that we're not going to get into because it really is advanced uh, and not that relevant for us. The controversy occurs, was this the first time Salat al-Khawf was prayed or not? Remember last week I said that there was a battle, the battle of Banu Lahyan, where some scholars say, that the Salat al-Khawf was prayed over there for the first time. Okay? The other opinion is that the Salat al-Khawf was prayed for the first time at Hudaybiyah or in this incident of Hudaybiyah. And frankly, it's a very trivial issue. The difference is like seven, eight months before, between this and that. Some say that battle, some say this battle. Uh, and there's pages and pages written. I think there's not that much point going into this uh, tangent. Uh, but you should know that many scholars say the first time that Salat al-Khawf was prayed, it was in Asfan on their way to Hudaybiyah. In fact, it would be correct to say this is the majority opinion. It would be correct to say this is the majority opinion. So if you're asking a quiz, when was the process and the first time he prayed Salat al-Khawf, you should answer here, you will probably be correct in terms of the quiz answer, because they will go look up the popular books. But technically speaking, there's actually three occasions where scholars have said he prayed uh, Salat al-Khawf for the first time. The majority say it was over here. Now, since Khalid had blocked the path, and Abu Bakr has said, we're going to go to Mecca, what's going to happen? They have to find an alternative road, road, road to Mecca. They cannot walk straight into Khalid's army, because that's asking for war. So the Prophet ﷺ asked, who can take us amongst uh, such and such a path? So he knows of another path, but he doesn't know how to get there. And subhanAllah, we really don't think uh, of this too much, but... The fact of the matter is there were well-known highways in the time pre-modern highways. There were well-known highways, clear markings. And you find, you know, there would have been the same thing, small establishments buying and selling to the traders, water spots, food spots, just like we have in our times. And there was well-known pathways that the major caravans would take. And this is something that we really don't think about. But the fact of the matter is, yes, this is exactly how things were. And to go down another road, you really needed to have an expert guide. 
And the Prophet said, who amongst us can take us down? And he mentioned the path name, uh, the other path. And so somebody stood up and said, I know how to get there, Ya Rasulullah. I know how to get to the other path from here. Because the other path is not from here, it's on another road. I know how to get from point A to that point B. I can uh, guide you there. And so uh, the Prophet made him the scout or the leader uh, in terms of the guide. And this man, in order to get to the other, uh, to the other uh, highway, if you like, they had to pass through an entire valley of thorns and of volcanic rock. So they had to go through an entire plain that caused them to bleed, their feet to basically become sore. And they're walking through this uh, so much so that the process encouraged them by saying, this valley that we're going through now for you is like the door was for Bani Israel. What is this door for Bani Israel? And he then recited this verse. And he said, No one shall pass through this valley except that all of his sins will be forgiven. It was so difficult. And their feet are bleeding and their shrub is now going against the, the, you know, their, their shin and their ankles and everything. So the process eventually, he said that going through this valley, all of your sins will be forgiven. And this gave them immense motivation. And it gave them the impetus that they needed to, uh, to go through this entire uh, valley because it would be a forgiveness for their sins. He said, no one shall go through this valley except that all of his sins will be forgiven except for the man with the red camel. He made one exception. The man with the red camel, his sins will not be forgiven. So they began wondering, who is the man with the red camel? What is going on here? And so they found one of their men, the 1400, one of them, he was announcing at the back that I've lost a red camel, has anybody seen it? I've lost a red camel, has anybody seen it? So they came up to him and they said that, why don't, so obviously you're the man, you're the red camel here, why don't you come with us, let us go to the process and perhaps he will include you in the forgiveness as well. You know, whatever you've done, let's ask for, you know, for... And so it turns out this man was a clear Bedouin with nifaq in his heart. His response showed this. He said, for me to be searching for my camel is more beloved for me than to go to your companion to have my sins forgiven. So the Prophet Jibreel told him, basically, there's one man he's not going to be forgiven because he's not there for the right reasons. And subhanAllah, this is a very deep theological issue uh, that we have to be very careful about that people don't misinterpret. Uh, but not everybody who was physically with the Sahaba was a Sahabi. And this is actually mentioned in the Quran. Right? وَمِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مُنَافِقُونَ مِنْ حَوْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ مَرَدُوا عَلَى النِّفَاقِ لَا تَعْلَمُهُمْ نَحْنُ نَعْلَمُهُمْ Right? وَمِمَّنْ حَوْلَكُمْ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ مُنَافِقُونَ وَمِنْ أَهْلِ الْمَدِينَةِ مَرَدُوا عَلَى النِّفَاقِ لَا تَعْلَمُهُمْ نَحْنُ نَعْلَمُهُمْ That Allah says, amongst the Bedouins, there are many who have nifaq. You don't know them, we know them. Right? Now obviously, why is this problematic? Because the other group, the non-Sunni group, they jump at these texts. You understand this point? Right? And they say, Allah Azza wa clearly says that there are munafiqoon amongst those who are around the Prophet ﷺ. You understand this point, right? And they say, therefore, the other, you know, the major sahaba are munafiqun. Astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah. Now, this is not the time to go into detail to refute them, but it's very easy. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly says that, وَمِمَّنْ حَوْلَكُمْ مِنَ الْأَعْرَابِ That those who are around you of the 
Bedouins, Munafiqun. And then some of them are also living in Medina. As for the major Sahaba, there is no doubt that the Quran and Sunnah has praised them specifically, indirectly and directly. So we don't take a generic verse that there are Munafiqun and use it to negate specific evidences that Abu Bakr is in Jannah, Umar is in Jannah, Uthman is in Jannah, Ali is in Jannah, that Abu Bakr is this, that Umar is this, that Ali is this, that Uthman is this. We don't take a general verse, there are some Munafiqun, and use it to trump explicit specific verses. You understand this point, right? And there is no question that those whom they accuse of a'udhu billah hypocrisy or kufr, really whoever accuses them of hypocrisy, really that person ends up being a hypocrite, really. This is the reality, right? You cannot accuse Abu Bakr and Aisha and Umar and Uthman of having evil, except that the evil is in your heart rather than theirs. This is what we firmly believe, and that's something that is clear in the Quran, in the Sunnah. We don't uh, have any ambiguity in this uh, regard. Uh, so the point being, this hadith shows us, or this incident shows us a reality that we already know, that there were some unknown, we don't even know his name. There were some minor players, if you like, physically present, but their niyyah is not for Islam. Whatever his niyyah was, some business transaction, get some booty, whatever the business, his niyyah was, it's not for the sake of Islam. And when he's worried, where's my camel gone? And he's looking for his camel, the Sahaba say, come, we will ask the Prophet to forgive you. He says, for me to be hunting my camel is more important than going back to your sahibukum, he said, your companion. Where is the iman of this heart? Obviously, that's uh, a clear indication of why the Prophet said everybody will be forgiven except the man with the red camel. So uh, they spent the entire day walking through this valley. It was a very difficult journey. And by the time they exited the valley, the night had just begun to fall. The night had just begun to fall and they had reached the plain known as Hudaybiyah. Now they reached the plain of Hudaybiyah. Okay, so this valley of thorns, this, this, this difficult valley was basically between them and the main highway. When they finish there, they finally get to Hudaybiyah and Hudaybiyah leads directly to the road that the Prophet wanted to get to, right? From Hudaybiyah to Mecca, there's a direct road uh, that the Prophet wanted to get to. This is not the road from Medina. Hudaybiyah is actually on the way from Mecca to Jeddah and not from Medina to Mecca, right? Hudaybiyah is on the way to, from Jeddah to Mecca. So it is west, and the process is going down south. So he has to go across all the way to the west. And obviously, why is he doing this? Because he doesn't want war. Because he wants peace, he doesn't want to fight Khalid ibn Walid. He goes around all of this way, and the night begins to fall. And as soon as they enter Hudaybiyah, this is when the Prophet camel, the Prophet ﷺ's camel refuses to move, and in fact, it sits down. It sits down. And of course, when the Prophet's camel doesn't move, nobody else is going to go in front of him. He is leading the way, nobody's going to go. And so the Sahaba began yelling out uh, to the camel, Hal, Hal, which is what the arrows would say to the camel to stand up and go, right? Just like every you know, uh, animal has a certain uh, uh, call that you give it, right? Every single animal, this is the way. So they had something for the camels, Hal, Hal, which is, come on, move, let's go, let's go. Giddy up, as they say to the horses right now. And the camel did not move. And so they began getting angry at the camel because you're blocking everybody. You're stopping all of us. And so they said, uh, Qaswa has become stubborn. Qaswa was the name of the Prophet's camel. Qaswa has become stubborn. 
And the Prophet ﷺ said, Qaswa has not become stubborn, and neither is that in her nature. It's not in her nature to become stubborn. Rather, habisaha habisul fil, that the one who stopped the elephant has also stopped her. Habisaha habisul fil. The one who stopped the elephant has also uh, stopped her. And it was at this point in time as well that they ran out of water. They ran out of water and they complained to the Prophet ﷺ about the lack of water because they were not expecting to go away from the main road. Remember we had said the main road has these stations. They know exactly where they can buy and sell. They know where to go for the wells. Well, they're not on there anymore. They've gone to another road and now they're uh, at this plain of Hudaybiyah. Now, by the way, what is Hudaybiyah and why is it called Hudaybiyah? So uh, Hudaybiyah, most of the scholars uh, say that it is without a shadda, Hudaybiyah. And a minority say there is a shadda, Hudaybiyah. Trivial difference. But both are valid. So both are mentioned. Hudaybiyah and Hudaybiyah. Both are mentioned. And it seems as if the name Hudaybiyah, it comes from the Arabic term Hadba. And Hadba, do the Arabs here know what Hadba means? Is it a common Arabic word or is it one of those classical words that has lost? Ah, very good. So you, so there is something. Half the Arabs know, half of them don't know. Huh? Hunchback. Hunchback, right? Okay. So Hadba is what they call a hunchback, right? And apparently there was a tree in this plain that was like a hunchback. So it was going down, right? There was a tree going down. And there was a well next to the tree. So initially they called this land Hudaybiyah, the little tree that is crooked. Because Hudaybiyah min bab al-tasghir, fu'il, jubail, tasghir. Hudaybiyah, the little tree that is crooked. And then that name came to be the well, and then it came to the plains. So Hudaybiyah is this plain. And in our times, Hudaybiyah is called uh, Ash-Shumaysi. Ash-Shumaysi. And next time you guys go for Umrah, your plane will land in Jeddah, you will drive to Mecca, keep an eye out. Around 10 minutes, 15 minutes before you get to Mecca, keep an eye out and you will see a sign that says Ash-Shumaysi to your right. This Ash-Shumaysi is Hudaybiyah. In our times it's called Shumaysi because obviously place names, they change over time. In our times for some reason they call it Ash-Shumaysi. And it is uh, 20 kilometers outside of Mecca, right? On the road from Jeddah. So if you guys are coming from Medina, you won't see Shumaysi. On the road from Jeddah to Mecca, 20 kilometers outside of it, before you get into Mecca, you'll find a Shumaysi. And 20 kilometers is basically the distance that, you know, they would do in a few hours, you know. So it's what they call one marhala, one journey. That once you got riding, you're not going to stop till you get to Mecca. One journey away from uh, Mecca. Uh, now, from this, we gain some benefits before we move on. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the name of the Prophet's camel. Qaswa. Look at how much details has been preserved that we even know the name of his camel. And this shows us that if we know the name of his camel, وسلم, we know far more important things about the Prophet. وسلم. Those who say the sunnah has not been preserved, those who say, how do we know what happened? SubhanAllah, we know the number of white hairs in his beard. We know this. Anas Malik said, I counted 14 white hairs in the beard of the Prophet. وسلم. He's literally sitting there counting the white hairs. SubhanAllah. Again, the, to, the detail that the seerah has been preserved. So the Prophet's uh, mule is called Duldul. And his camel is called Qaswa. Right? And uh, his sword is called this. And his shield, they would name their swords and shields. In those days, they would name them. 
Uh, and so all of this is, is known to us. We also have over here, uh, subhanAllah, it's an amazing point here. When they criticized the camel, the Prophet defended the honor of the camel. This is not the characteristic of Qaswa. It's not the nature of Qaswa. So if the honor of a camel deserves to be protected, how about the honor of a Muslim? Look at what happens when you jump to conclusions and you smear somebody. Smear a camel, right? The Prophet protected the honor of the camel. Neither has Qaswa become stubborn and nor even is it in her nature to become stubborn. She's a gentle camel. Don't, don't get angry at her, right? And so this shows us that next time you hear somebody smear somebody else, remember, even a camel's izzah has to be protected, especially the camel of the Prophet How about another human being? Also here notice the beautiful linkage that the Prophet said, that the one who stopped the camel is the one who stopped the elephant. Wallahi, how perfect, how apt is that? How eloquent is that, right? In the both cases, they're animals going into Mecca, right? In the both cases, the point is to honor Ka the Kaaba. And by stopping these animals, the Kaaba is going to be honored, right? So the Prophet is saying the one who can stop a bigger animal than Qaswa, and that's the elephant, that is the one that has stopped my animal. And just like there was a wisdom for stopping Abraha's elephants, so too there's a wisdom for stopping uh, Qaswa. And so let us put our trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and realize there is a wisdom over here. So where the camel stopped Qaswa, that is where they set up camp. And they went to the well of Hudaybiyah. There was one well over there. And lo and behold, the water had basically almost dried out. There's just some... Some, you know, uh, little bits in the, at the bottom of the well. It's supposed to be at the top. Uh, rather, the well has already dried out and it is just a little bit left in the bottom. And so they're complaining to the process and we don't have any water. We're out of water. Our animals are thirsty. We have been in the valley the whole day. You know, we, we need water. Uh, and so the Prophet ﷺ went to the side of the well and he sat on it. And he told some of the Sahaba to jump in or to ha make their way down. Some scholars say that some people, uh, by a turban, they went down. Uh, and so they went into the well. And the Prophet ﷺ handed them some of his quivers. The uh, arrows from the quiver, excuse me. He took out some arrows from the, his quiver and he handed it to them. And they also raised up the little bit of water that they could in a bucket. And he gargled that water into his mouth. And he threw it back into the bucket and he lowered it uh, into the well. And uh, the Sahaba said that the water just began to gush out. After he had put his arrows, after he had thrown his uh, madmada into the well, the water just began to gush out. And the ones in the well, they had to rush out so that they don't drown. So they had to rush out so that they're not drowning. And the entire camp of 1400 people, they drank and they continued to drink as long as they were encamped in Hudaybiyah. Their animals drank to their fill. And this was one of the many, many miracles of the Prophet ﷺ of taking a small quantity of food and making it into a large uh, quantity. And the Prophet ﷺ, now that he realized that khalas, negotiations are going to begin, that Mecca is one stone's throw away, that thing is going to happen. So then the Prophet made an announcement that Wallahi, I swear by the one in whose... Uh, uh, hands is my soul the Quraysh will not ask of me any condition that the signs of Allah are respected except that I will give them that condition as long as we avoid bloodshed subhanallah notice here 
how keen the Prophet is. He doesn't want fighting to occur. Any condition they put, as long as that condition has Sha'ir al Islam, right? Sha'ir Allah. As long as there's nothing haram, anything that they put, I will agree to it. And why did he agree to this? Why did he say this? So that the Sahaba realize as well that I am willing now, as long as we get to the Kaaba, as long as they allow us to go, and as long as there's no bloodshed and everything is peaceful, whatever conditions they put, I will be willing to do that. And this is a prelude to some very harsh conditions. Conditions that even Umar and others, they could not understand at the time. This is a prelude to prepare them, mentally to prepare them. And the camp, uh, he settled down in the camp, Khalid ibn al-Walid, obviously now 1400 people when they go places, they cannot go in secret. And so the scouts of Khalid's army come back and tell him, the Prophet is not coming from here. He rather he's going from uh, Hudaybiyah, he's camped over there. So Khalid was forced to return to Mecca and the Quraysh then you know, had to change their tactics and they began a series of emissaries which we cannot start now because that would really be, I cannot start that right now because that would be uh, the whole, you know, I have to stop in the middle. This is a good place to stop even though we have some time. But now is the negotiations are going to begin and that's going to be inshallah ta'ala uh, next Wednesday, inshallah ta'ala. So we have uh, 10 minutes for Q&A, uh, a bit longer than usual. Usually I'm rushing to the end, but today I thought, let me actually purposely finish a little bit early uh, so we leave some time for Q&A, inshallah. Yes? So the brother is saying, how could Abu Qatada hunt a zebra in Ashur al-Hurum, which is Dhul Qaida, the response, Akhi, imagine if you lived uh, in the desert or any, pl- any land other than a city and Allah had told you you're not allowed to hunt for four months. This would mean you don't have food sometimes for four months. There are no prohibitions for hunting in Ashur al-Hurum. None at all. What is haram is aggression against humans not aggression against zebras okay in ihram wherever you are in the world and in the haram of mecca in the haram of mecca by the way not the haram of medina by the way the haram of medina and mecca have over 50 differences i gave a paper about this once a long time ago uh the haram of mecca and medina have over 50 differences one of the differences, one of the main differences, hunting is only haram in the haram of Mecca. Right? Whereas the haram of Medina it is allowed. On the haram of Jerusalem there is no, it's not even haram technically. Uh, they say al-haram al-thalith, the three harams, there's no such thing. There's only two harams in Islam. Uh, but anyway, that answers your question, inshallah. Yes? MashaAllah. <laughs> he wants to know, can I beat somebody up if somebody beats me? Any act of defense is halal at any time of the year. We're talking about war of aggression, war that you begin, that sometimes, what this nation calls preemptive wars, right? So these types of preemptive, that there is no imminent threat, you are going to attack. This is what is prohibited. As for individual fighting, this is always haram. Two Muslims are never allowed to fist fight or fight with weapons 
you know, it's not something that is always haram, right? And only if somebody attacks you are you allowed to defend, okay? So we're talking about an aggression against from one political state against another political state. Sisters, any question from the sister side? Back to the brother's side. Another question, yes. Sallallahu alayhi wa Yes. The people who were left behind were criti- The question is, why were those who were left behind considered sinful when the Prophet did not command them to go? The response is, they are criticized for lying. They're criticized for lying. Not every Sahabi went for, uh, for Ghazwatul Hudaybiyah, but some might have had other excuses. Uh, but the reason why those A'rab, those Bedouins are criticized is because they blatantly lied. And they thought something very evil. And they thought, You thought a very evil thought. And that evil thought, of course, was that they thought that the Prophet would die. Okay, so this is why they were criticized. They lied through their teeth. They lied and they said, شَغَلَتْنَا أَمْوَالُنَا وَأَهْلُونَا our money and our families have prevented us. Whereas that wasn't the reason. Okay. There was a hand raised. You had a hand? Yeah. Go ahead. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. لا 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 أبدا لا يسألونك عن الشهر الحرام قتال فيه قل قتال فيه إيش حلال قل قتال فيه كبير وصد عن سبيل الله وكفر به والمسجد الحرام وإخراج أهل منه أكبر عند الله so the brother is saying that in the incident I, refer- I referenced when Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas killed uh, a person and he took two captives and he came back to the Prophet So he is saying that didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say that it is okay to fight in Ashur al-Hurum? No. We talked about this in a lot of detail before the Battle of Badr. And we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave blame where it is due. And he did say that fighting in Ashur al-Haram is a major sin. And they should not have done this. That it wasn't the right thing to do. But Allah says... Who does the Quraysh think it is to criticize Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas? For they have committed far worse sins. For they have prevented people from coming to the Masjid al-Haram. Forget it, Ashul al-Hurum. They have prevented Muslims from worshipping Allah in Masjid al-Haram, right? That wasaddun an sabillahi wa kufrun bihi wal Masjid al-Haram. Ay wasaddun an Masjid al-Haram. To prevent people from coming to Masjid al-Haram, akbaru indallah. It is bigger in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah did not say fighting is halal. Rather Allah said it is kabir. It is a mistake. But who do you think you are, O Quraysh, to criticize the Muslims for anything after all that you have done? Final questions? Yes. So a fifth question that if you visit Jeddah, must you do Umrah? No, not at all. In fact, 
I know this sounds bizarre to many of you, but technically speaking, you don't even have to do Umrah if you visit Mecca, much less Jeddah. Even though one would say, how could you possibly go to Mecca and not do Umrah? But there might be some businessmen, and this is common, by the way, for those who are living around Mecca, that they have to deliver goods in Mecca. So taxi drivers is a classic example. So here you are in Memphis thinking, how can any Muslim visit Mecca and not do Umrah? But how about the taxi drivers from Ta'if and Jeddah, right? They go between Mecca and, and Jeddah maybe five times a day. You expect them to do Umrah every single time, right? So technically speaking, you can even enter Mecca without ihram, without doing Umrah, right? Even though people like us who go there once every few years, right? Then obviously it, it, it really is a lack of adab not to do Umrah, right? So even if a businessman who goes once a year is going, we tell him, Wallahi, akhi, this is not appropriate for you to go, but it, it's not haram, it's not sinful. As long as he's done Umrah and Hajj and he's going for a legitimate business or whatever reason he's going, then we cannot criticize him, but we'll say it's not appropriate. As for the one who's going regularly, obviously, had we been in his shoes, we'd do the same thing as well. Okay? And with this, inshallah, any question with the sisters, mashallah, quiet day from the sisters, mashallah. Okay, we have a question here. Huh? Where? Yes, go ahead. Yes. Uh, so the sister is saying that uh, she doesn't understand how is it possible for the Prophet Sallallahu to uh, grant forgiveness to somebody. And the response is, that the Prophet did not grant forgiveness, rather Allah told him that this valley will be such a big blessing for all of these people because they're struggling, they're bleeding, they're whatnot. So the Prophet was told that this valley to you is like the door was to the children of Israel. When Allah says in the Quran, enter the door, udkhulul bab, humbly, and ask Allah to forgive you, Allah will forgive all of your sins. You know the story in, in, in um, Surah Al-Baqarah for the children of Israel. So the Prophet said, this valley to you is like the door to the Israelites. right? And all of you shall be forgiven. Meaning at this point in time, maybe this man of the red camel became better later. Allah knows. But at that point in time, his crossing over the valley would not get his sins forgiven. right? Except for the man with the red camel. Is that clear? He's not telling... Sorry, he's not granting forgiveness. He is informing them that Allah Azza wa has blessed them except for that man. And we clearly saw what was in his heart that he did not deserve that forgiveness. And inshallah with that we will uh, pause for this and come back next Wednesday. Uh, for those of you who didn't attend on Tuesday, so we have started the, the, the uh, Sahih Bukhari class. And we'll be starting our first Sahih Bukhari hadith actually of uh, the, the book of Dua next Tuesday. And I asked any of you who wants to attend, please register with Brother Rusli because we need to print out the binders and, and uh, uh, distribute them or actually sell them at cost price next Tuesday. So we need to know how many binders uh, we need. And with that, Jazakumullahu Khairan. Uh, we can give the adhan and pray, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim.